Chapter Six, Part Two of *The Voyage of the Beagle*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. *The Voyage of the Beagle* by Charles Darwin. Chapter Six, Part Two. Bahia Blanca to Buenos Aires. September Fourteenth. As the soldiers belonging to the next posta meant to return, and we should together make a party of five and all armed, I determined not to wait for the expected troops. My host, the lieutenant, pressed me much to stop. As he had been very obliging, not only providing me with food, but lending me his private horses, I wanted to make him some remuneration. I asked my guide whether I might do so, but he told me certainly not, that the only answer I should receive probably would be, we have meat for the dogs in our country, and therefore do not grudge it to a Christian. It must not be supposed that the rank of lieutenant in such an army would at all prevent the acceptance of payment. It was only the high sense of hospitality which every traveller is bound to acknowledge as nearly universal throughout these provinces. After galloping some leagues, we came to a low swampy country, which extends for nearly eighty miles northward, as far as the Sierra Tapalguen. In some parts there were fine, damp plains, covered with grass, while others had a soft, black, and peaty soil. There were also many extensive but shallow lakes, and large beds of reeds. The country on the whole resembled the better parts of the Cambridgeshire fens, at night we had some difficulty in finding, amidst the swamps, a dry place for our bivouac. September 15th. Rose very early in the morning, and shortly after passed the posta, where the Indians had murdered the five soldiers. The officer had eighteen Cuzo wounds in his body. By the middle of the day, after a hard gallop, we reached the fifth posta. On account of some difficulty in procuring horses, we stayed there the night. As this point was one of the most exposed on the whole line, twenty-one soldiers were stationed here. At sunset they returned from hunting, bringing with them seven deer, three ostriches, and many armadillos and partridges. When riding through the country, it is a common practice to set fire to the plain, and hence at night, as on this occasion, the horizon was illuminated in several places by brilliant conflagrations. This is done partly for the sake of puzzling any stray Indians, but chiefly for improving the pasture. In grassy plains unoccupied by the larger ruminating quadrupeds, it seems necessary to remove the superfluous vegetation by fire, so as to render the new year's growth serviceable. The rancho at this place did not boast even of a roof, but merely consisted of a ring of thistle-stalks to break the force of the wind. It was situated on the borders of an extensive but shallow lake, swarming with wild fowl, among which the black-necked swan was conspicuous. The kind of plover, which appears as if mounted on stilts, Himantopus nigricollis, is here common in flocks of considerable size. It has been wrongfully accused of inelegance. When wading about in shallow water, which is its favorite resort, its gait is far from awkward. 
these birds in a flock utter a noise that singularly resembles the cry of a pack of small dogs in full chase waking in the night i have more than once been for a moment startled at the distant sound the teru teru vanellus caeanus is another bird which often disturbs the stillness of the night in appearance and habits it resembles in many respects our peewits its wings however are armed with sharp spurs like those on the legs of the common cock as our peewit takes its name from the sound of its voice so does the teru teru while riding over the grassy plains one is constantly pursued by these birds which appear to hate mankind and i am sure deserve to be hated for their never-ceasing unvaried harsh screams to the sportsman they are most annoying by telling every other bird and animal of his approach to the traveller in the country they may possibly as molina says do good by warning him of the midnight robber during the breeding season they attempt like our peewits by feigning to be wounded to draw away from their nests dogs and other enemies the eggs of this bird are esteemed a great delicacy september sixteenth to the seventh pasta at the foot of the sierra tapalguen the country was quite level with a coarse herbage and a soft peaty soil the hovel was here remarkably neat the posts and rafters being made of about a dozen dry thistle-stalks bound together with thongs of hide and by the support of these ionic-like columns the roof and sides were thatched with reeds we were here told a fact which i would not have credited if i had not had partly ocular proof of it namely that during the previous night hail as large as small apples and extremely hard had fallen with such violence as to kill the greater number of the wild animals one of the men had already found thirteen deer cervus campestris lying dead and i saw their fresh hides another of the party a few minutes after my arrival brought in seven more now i well know that one man without dogs could hardly have killed seven deer in a week the men believed they had seen about fifteen ostriches part of one of which we had for dinner and they said that several were running about evidently blind in one eye numbers of smaller birds as ducks hawks and partridges were killed i saw one of the latter with a black mark on its back as if it had been struck with a paving stone a fence of thistle stalks round the hovel was nearly broken down and my informer putting his head out to see what was the matter received a severe cut and now wore a bandage the storm was said to have been of limited extent we certainly saw from our last night's bivouac a dense cloud and lightning in this direction it is marvellous how such strong animals as deer could thus have been killed but i have no doubt from the evidence i have given that the story is not in the least exaggerated i am glad however to have its credibility supported by the jesuit dobrijofen who speaking of a country much to the northward says hail fell of an enormous size and killed vast numbers of cattle the indians hence called the place lalegraikavalka meaning the little white things footnote history of the abiponis volume two page six 
Dr. Malcolmson, also, informs me that he witnessed in 1831, in India, a hailstorm which killed numbers of large birds and much injured the cattle. These hailstones were flat, and one was ten inches in circumference, and another weighed two ounces. They ploughed up a gravel walk like musket balls, and passed through glass windows, making round holes, but not cracking them. Having finished our dinner of hail-stricken meat, we crossed the Sierra Tapogwen, a low range of hills a few hundred feet in height, which commences at Cape Corrientes. The rock in this part is pure quartz. Further eastward, I understand it is granitic. The hills are of a remarkable form. They consist of flat patches of table-land, surrounded by low perpendicular cliffs, like the outliers of a sedimentary deposit. The hill which I ascended was very small, not above a couple of hundred yards in diameter, but I saw others larger. One which goes by the name of the Corral is said to be two or three miles in diameter, and encompassed by perpendicular cliffs between thirty and forty feet high, excepting at one spot where the entrance lies. Falconer gives a curious account of the Indians driving troops of wild horses into it, and then, by guarding the entrance, keeping them secure. Footnote, Falconer's Patagonia, page 70. I have never heard of any other instance of table-land in a formation of quartz, and which, in the hill I examined, had neither cleavage nor stratification. I was told that the rock of the corral was white, and would strike fire. We did not reach the posta on the Rio Tapalguen till after it was dark. At supper, from something which was said, I was suddenly struck with horror at thinking that I was eating one of the favorite dishes of the country, namely a half-formed calf, long before its proper time of birth. It turned out to be puma. The meat is very white, and remarkably like veal in taste. Dr. Shaw was laughed at for stating that, the flesh of the lion is in great esteem, having no small affinity with veal, both in color, taste, and flavor. Such, certainly, is the case with the puma. The gauchos differ in their opinion whether the jaguar is good-eating, but are unanimous in saying that cat is excellent. September 17th. We followed the course of the Rio Tapalguen through a very fertile country to the ninth posta. Tapalguen itself, or the town of Tapalguen, if it may be so called, consists of a perfectly level plain, studded over, as far as the eye can reach, with the toldos, or oven-shaped huts of the Indians. The families of the friendly Indians, who were fighting on the side of the Rosas, resided here. We met and passed many young Indian women, riding by two or three together on the same horse. They, as well as many of the young men, were strikingly handsome, their fine, ruddy complexions being the picture of health. Besides the toldos, there were three ranchos, one inhabited by the commandant, and the two others by Spaniards with small shops. We were here able to buy some biscuit. I had now been several days without tasting anything besides meat. I did not at all dislike this new regimen but I felt as if it would only have agreed with me with hard exercise. I have heard that patients in England, when desired to confine themselves exclusively to an animal diet, even with the hope of life before their eyes, have hardly been able to endure it. 
yet the gaucho in the pampas for months together touches nothing but beef but they eat i observe a very large proportion of fat which is of a less animalized nature and they particularly dislike dry meat such as that of the agouti dr richardson also has remarked that when people have fed for a long time solely upon lean animal food the desire for fat becomes so insatiable that they can consume a large quantity of unmixed and even oily fat without nausea this appears to me a curious physiological fact footnote Fauna Boreali Americana, Volume 1, page 35. It is perhaps from their meat regimen that the gauchos, like other carnivorous animals, can abstain long from food. I was told that at Tandil some troops voluntarily pursued a party of Indians for three days without eating or drinking. We saw in the shops many articles, such as horse-cloths, belts, and garters, woven by the Indian women. The patterns were very pretty, and the colors brilliant. The workmanship of the garters was so good that an English merchant at Buenos Aires maintained they must have been manufactured in England, till he found the tassels had been fastened by split sinew. September 18th. We had a very long ride this day. At the twelfth posta, which is seven leagues south of the Rio Salado, we came to the first estancia with cattle and white women. Afterwards we had to ride for many miles through a country flooded with water above our horses' knees. By crossing the stirrups and riding Arab-like with our legs bent up, we contrived to keep tolerably dry. It was nearly dark when we arrived at the Salado. The stream was deep and about forty yards wide. In summer, however, its bed becomes almost dry, and the little remaining water nearly as salt as that of the sea. We slept at one of the great estancias of General Rosas. It was fortified, and of such an extent, that arriving in the dark I thought it was a town and fortress. In the morning we saw immense herds of cattle, the general here having seventy-four square leagues of land. Formerly, nearly three hundred men were employed about this estate, and they defied all the attacks of the Indians. September 19th. Passed the Guardia del Monte. This is a nice scattered little town, with many gardens full of peach and quince trees. The plain here looked like that around Buenos Aires, the turf being short and bright green, with beds of clover and thistles, and with bizcacha holes. I was very much struck with the marked change in the aspect of the country after having crossed the Salado. From a coarse herbage we passed on to a carpet of fine green verdure. I at first attributed this to some change in the nature of the soil, but the inhabitants assured me that here, as well as in Banda Oriental, where there is as great a difference between the country round Montevideo and the thinly inhabited savannas of Colonia, the whole was to be attributed to the manuring and grazing of the cattle. Exactly the same fact has been observed in the prairies of North America, where coarse grass, between five and six feet high, when grazed by cattle, changes into common pasture land. Footnote. See Mr. Atwater's account of the prairies in Silliman's N.A. Journal, Volume 1, page 117. 
I am not botanist enough to say whether the change here is owing to the introduction of new species, to the altered growth of the same, or to a difference in their proportional numbers. Azara has also observed with astonishment this change. He is likewise much perplexed by the immediate appearance of plants not occurring in the neighborhood, on the borders of any track that leads to a newly constructed hovel. In another part, he says, Ces chevaux, sauvages, ont la manie de préférer les chemins, et le bord des rues pour déposer leurs excréments, dont on trouve les monceaux dans ces endroits. Footnote. Azara's Voyages, Volume 1, page 373. Does this not partly explain the circumstance? We thus have lines of richly manured land serving as channels of communication across wide districts. Near the Guardia, we find the southern limit of two European plants now become extraordinarily common. The fennel, in great profusion, covers the ditch-banks in the neighborhood of Buenos Aires, Montevideo, and other towns. But the cardoon, Cynara cardunculus, has a far wider range. It occurs in these latitudes on both sides of the Cordillera across the continent. Footnote. M. A. Dorbigny, Volume 1, page 474, says that the cardoon and artichoke are both found wild. Dr. Hooker, Botanical Magazine, Volume 4, page 2862, has described a variety of the Cynara from this part of South America under the name of Inermis. He states that botanists are now generally agreed that the cardoon and the artichoke are varieties of one plant. I may add that an intelligent farmer assured me that he had observed in a deserted garden some artichokes changing into the common cardoon. Dr. Hooker believes that Head's vivid description of the thistle of the pampas applies to the cardoon, but this is a mistake. Captain Head referred to the plant, which I have mentioned a few lines lower down, under the title of giant thistle. Whether it is a true thistle I do not know, but it is quite different from the cardoon, and more like a thistle, properly so called. End footnote. I saw it in unfrequented spots in Chile, Entre Rios, and Banda Oriental. In the latter country alone, very many, probably several hundred, square miles, are covered by one mass of these prickly plants, and are impenetrable by man or beast. Over the undulating plains, where these great beds occur, nothing else can now live. Before their introduction, however, the surface must have supported, as in other parts, a rank herbage. I doubt whether any case is on record of an invasion on so grand a scale of one plant over the aborigines. As I have already said, I nowhere saw the cardoon south of the Salado, but it is probable that in proportion as that country becomes inhabited, the cardoon will extend its limits. The case is different with the giant thistle, with variegated leaves, of the pampas, for I met with it in the valley of the sauce. According to the principles so well laid down by Mr. Lyell, few countries have undergone more remarkable changes since the year 1535, when the first colonists of La Plata landed with seventy-two horses. The countless herds of horses, cattle, and sheep not only have altered the whole aspect of the vegetation, but they have almost banished the guanaco, deer, and ostrich. Numberless other changes must likewise have taken place. 
The wild pig in some parts probably replaces the peccary. Packs of wild dogs may be heard howling on the wooded banks of the less frequented streams, and the common cat, altered into a large and fierce animal, inhabits rocky hills. As M. d'Orbigny has remarked, the increase in numbers of the carrion vulture, since the introduction of the domestic animals, must have been infinitely great, and we have given reasons for believing that they have extended their southern range. No doubt many plants, besides the cardoon and fennel, are naturalized. Thus the islands near the mouth of the piranha are thickly clothed with peach and orange trees, springing from seeds carried there by the waters of the river. While changing horses at the Guardia, several people questioned us much about the army. I never saw anything like the enthusiasm for Rosas, and for the success of the most just of all wars because against barbarians. This expression, it must be confessed, is very natural, for, till lately, neither man, woman, nor horse was safe from the attacks of the Indians. We had a long day's ride over the same rich green plain, abounding with various flocks, and with here and there a solitary estancia and its one ombu tree. In the evening it rained heavily. On arriving at a post-house we were told by the owner that if we had not a regular passport we must pass on, for there were so many robbers he would trust no one. When he read, however, my passport, which began with El Naturalista Don Carlos, his respect and civility were as unbounded as his suspicions had been before. What a naturalist might be, neither he nor his countrymen, I suspect, had any idea. But probably my title lost nothing of its value from that cause. September 20th. We arrived by the middle of the day at Buenos Aires. The outskirts of the city looked quite pretty, with the agave hedges and groves of olive, peach, and willow trees, all just throwing out their fresh green leaves. I rode to the house of Mr. Lum, an English merchant, to whose kindness and hospitality, during my stay in the country, I was greatly indebted. The city of Buenos Aires is large, and I should think one of the most regular in the world. Footnote. It is said to contain sixty thousand inhabitants. Montevideo, the second town of importance on the banks of the Plata, has fifteen thousand. Every street is at right angles to the one it crosses, and the parallel ones being equidistant, the houses are collected into solid squares of equal dimensions, which are called quadras. On the other hand, the houses themselves are hollow squares, all the rooms opening into a neat little courtyard. They are generally only one story high, with flat roofs, which are fitted with seats and are much frequented by the inhabitants in summer. In the center of the town is the plaza, where the public offices, fortress, cathedral, etc., stand. Here also the old viceroys before the revolution had their palaces. The general assemblage of buildings possesses considerable architectural beauty, although none individually can boast of any. The great corral, where the animals are kept for slaughter to supply food to this beef-eating population, is one of the spectacles best worth seeing. The strength of the horse, as compared to that of the bullock, is quite astonishing. A man on horseback, having thrown his lazo round the horns of a beast, can drag it anywhere he chooses. 
The animal, ploughing up the ground with outstretched legs, in vain efforts to resist the force, generally dashes at full speed to one side. But the horse, immediately turning to receive the shock, stands so firmly that the bullock is almost thrown down, and it is surprising that their necks are not broken. The struggle is not, however, one of fair strength, the horse's girth being matched against the bullock's extended neck. In a similar manner, a man can hold the wildest horse, if caught with the lasso, just behind the ears. When the bullock has been dragged to the spot where it is to be slaughtered, the matador, with great caution, cuts the hamstrings. Then is given the death bellow, a noise more expressive of fierce agony than any I know. I have often distinguished it from a long distance, and have always known that the struggle was then drawing to a close. The whole sight is horrible and revolting. The ground is almost made of bones, and the horses and riders are drenched with gore. End of chapter 6, part 2